Section 48 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Winterburn. The World's Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Ava March Tapan. Section 48. How the Canadian Northwest Awoke. End of the Nineteenth Century. By A. G. Bradley. Footnote. From Bradley's Canada. By permission of Henry Holt and Company, USA. End of footnote. The Canadian Northwest, though it progressed steadily, did none too well. The first generation of settlers had to learn how to deal with the totally new country. The winters were terribly severe. The Canadians were used to a zero and often a ten and twenty below winter temperature. But the prairies went at times far lower than this. To the immigrant from Britain, this was harder still. Most of the new settlers, too, were people of small means, and not able, or often not experienced enough, to protect themselves properly from the climate. When people are properly housed in warmed buildings and their stock in good barns, when they live near together, are within easy reach of a railroad or town, and have telephones and telegraphs, a winter like the Northwest matters little, as there is no farm work to be done in it. But in the early days the settler had often no near neighbors, and neither himself nor his animals were well housed. He was sometimes forced to leave a wife and children alone while he made long and even perilous trips for trifling but necessary things. Women frequently went mad from the solitude of the prairie. But above all, the price of grain remained low, and the cost of transport to the world's markets was still so high that even with a good crop securely saved, it did not leave the prairie farmer enough profit to tempt outsiders, with half a dozen other fields to choose from, to a life the hardships of which had been noised very much abroad. Farmers in old Canada consoled themselves in their natural grievance against the Northwest by enlarging on its drawbacks. The Americans, eager for immigration to their own West, made great play with the Manitoba winter. British capital avoided the country as if it were not yet proven. And immigrants of substantial capital from Great Britain went to the American West to say nothing of other British colonies, at the rate of thirty or forty for one who went to the Canadian Northwest. There is no doubt that for many years the country had a bad name, and that its well-wishers were disappointed at its slow progress. The city of Winnipeg, as the sole entrepot, the Chicago of Western Canada, as it had been fondly styled, did not grow as a Chicago should. None of the small towns strung along the railroad increased as western towns in a rich country should increase. 
population and production made steady progress, and hundreds of contented farmers who had come up with little or nothing were to be found in the land. But that the Northwest, till within the last year or two of the last century, had disappointed expectations, there is no doubt. All Canada, indeed, had gone very slowly for the previous twenty years. Both in East and West there was a vast amount of solid well-being and quiet progress. But for a new country that had just annexed a fertile slice of a continent, things were not right. Comparisons between old Canada and the eastern states in material advance were inevitable and unpleasant. Population barely maintained the rate of an old country. Canadians went to the United States by thousands. The west of Canada, again, compared equally badly with the American west when it came to figures. Nobody quite knew why, but everybody knew it was so. At the close of the last century, the Canadian Northwest suddenly woke up. Nothing particular happened up there. It had been going steadily and slowly along when the outside world suddenly discovered it had misjudged the country. Two things, however, contributed to show the world its mistake. A very active immigration policy on the part of the Dominion government in Great Britain, and even in parts of Europe, coincided with the exhaustion of all the free grant and cheap lands worth having in the United States. Then suddenly a rush began to the Canadian Northwest. There were millions of acres of good land unoccupied and owned by the government, by the Canadian Pacific Railroad, which had received great areas as part payment, and by the Hudson's Bay Company, which had received them in consideration of their old rights. There were free grants on conditions of settlement and cultivation, and other lands at a nominal price. The American habit for generations among a considerable class had been to take up land on a frontier, make a good improved farm of it, sell it at a high price during a buoyant time, and then move on westward to repeat themselves, or in the person of their children, the same process. They had now got to their farthest west, and settled that up in good farms, worth ten or fifteen pounds an acre. There was no further move possible, till suddenly they discovered that Northwest Canada offered yet another shift, as promising as any they or their fathers had ever made. Nay, better, for they soon saw that no wheat land in America had ever been so certain and produced quite such good stuff as this new country. So all through the western states, times being good, American farmers sold their well-equipped farms at high prices and removed to the Canadian Northwest, where they could take larger tracts of land which would grow into money as their old farms had done, and where there was room to settle their sons around them. Coming like this, they were mostly men of capital, and still more of complete experience for the life, which was precisely what they had been used to. They cared very little for the trifling differences in government, and as a matter of fact, they soon saw that such difference as existed was in favor of the Canadian administration, particularly in the matter of law and order. 
Many of them, too, were Canadians or the sons of Canadians, who had gone to the western states when Canada offered nothing to the poor man but a backwoods life, when the best of the backwoods period was over. Other Americans, of course, not situated precisely as these were, also went. But this was the type that led the movement, and a more valuable one could not be. They began by tens of thousands, increased up to fifty thousand per annum, and took in millions of pounds. What is more, the country proved all that they expected. The question was, and is, what effect such a large element, till recently American citizens, might have in weaning the northwestern Canadians from their allegiance to the mother country. Canada, however, has developed very strong national feelings, coupled, as everyone now knows, with a staunch devotion to the empire. And the Canadian verdict on this new element in their midst is that they are making good Canadians. On that satisfactory and authoritative verdict, we must leave it. No doubt the spectacle of hard-headed Americans pouring into Canada was an object lesson to Great Britain, and banished any lingering doubt as to the desirability of the Northwest. 200,000 immigrants have gone in annually of late from the United Kingdom and largely to the Northwest. They are of all sorts, and not generally ready-made sons of the soil, like most of the Americans. But a fair proportion are valuable immigrants, and the children, at least, of those who are less adaptable, will play their part. The change in the state of the country in the last dozen years is miraculous. Winnipeg has leaped up to a population of 140,000. The small towns along the railroads, which languished for years, have all grown marvelously. It is in the country outside the towns, however, that the most interesting change has taken place. All the way from Winnipeg to the Rocky Mountains, with the exception of some intervals of barren country, there is a continuous procession of comfortable homesteads, as in Ontario, often of brick or stone, with large outbuildings, sheltered by plantations, all within easy reach of one another and representing farms of from a hundred and sixty to six hundred and forty acres. Though wheat is the great cash crop, mixed farming is widely practiced, oats, hay, and stock of all kinds being everywhere prominent. The fields out here are large, and being fenced with wire, the country retains its wide-open aspect, utterly different from old Canada with its small railed-in fields and abundance of wood. Most of the vegetables and small fruits known in England flourish here, as in Ontario. Apples, however, do not succeed well, and the orchard is the one familiar object of country life lacking. To the original province of Manitoba, two western provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta filling up the interval to the Rocky Mountains, have been formally united to the Dominion Confederation. In the three prairie provinces there are now one million three hundred thousand people out of seven and odd million in the whole Dominion. 
ten years ago there were four hundred thousand. End of section forty eight. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Stephen Winterburn.